0: Georgie. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Come with me if you want to live. And welcome to Direct to Nowhere, the section of the Road to Nowhere podcast in which we invite a guest on to discuss one of their favourite directors and three movies from that director. I'm your host Andy Connor and tonight I'm delighted to be joined by a horror writer and assistant editor at Girls Magazine and also the author of Mums and Sons, Rebecca McCallum. Hi Rebecca, how are you doing?
1: Hello, Andy. Not too bad for a January.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's been a, the usual kind of slow month, of pre-Christmas payday, and then the it's not been awful. At least it was not a terrible snow.
1: No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, well, thanks very much for having us on. And we're going to have an interesting chat tonight. We won't come on to the director at the minute. I'll just leave that for later. But So just for folk that are listening that don't know yourself, just a, a kind of brief... Run down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a little David Copperfield moment for me. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, a writer, I write about horror and uh, I do film analysis. I've got bylines at places like Rue Morgue, Dread Central, Grim Journal. As you said, I'm assistant editor at the Wonderful Girls magazine, mm-hmm. um, also assistant editor at Beauty of Horror. I'm author of Mums and Sons, a pocketbook about familial relationships in horror and I'm also senior contributor at moving pictures film club where um i i do uh tutorials and podcasts and things like that
0: mm-hmm. uh, with uh, tim tim with coleman, tim coleman. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i on before talking a part channel, i think it was
1: okay that would make sense yeah i know he's a big fan
0: yeah and yeah. uh, that was a good chat um mums and sons how what is the um the kind of inspiration behind that when you brought it out? Was it just, is it something? I've not read it personally, um, but is it, it's obviously you said about familial relationships and horror. What was your yeah. thought process behind that?
1: Um, so uh, it started out as a sort of long form piece about Psycho and okay. Norma Bates's relationship with its mother. And then I kind of thought, I've seen Hereditary and I thought, ooh, that's an interesting mother son relationship there as well. Yeah, and then I thought, hang on, I could I could actually look at mums and sons through three stages. So I could look at childhood and mm-hmm. then teenagers and adulthood. So I need one more film, and then I found the Babadook, and everything just seemed to fit into place. And so mm-hmm. it really talks about the, the the sort of consistent themes that run. Across the three films, and then mm-hmm. about the horror of motherhood, and sort of unmasking that taboo, and how we as women connect with that in the in the you know the horror genre.
0: Mm, cool, the three great movies there as well. Yeah. I read proper put the shits up me first time I seen it. Um, <laughs> it's been a while since I've watched Psycho um, and The Babadook as well. It was just really really great, terrifying as well.
1: Yeah, Love yeah, that. not easy watches, but um, lots no. to dig into.
0: <laughs> no, anyway especially looking the, at the the themes in Hereditary and what happens in that movie. Like, I think people that know Ari Aster know how he goes. Um, <laughs> I just watched his short film for the first time this year. Uh, okay. The, is it Something the, Up With The Johnsons or something? What yeah.
1: Oh, that's...
0: Fucking hell. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's like a, a 10, 15-minute uh, or maybe half an hour actually, maybe a wee bit longer. Uh, nightmare. <laughs> like, yeah, I,
1: I like those like uncomfortable places that you put you in. Like mm-hmm. that's interesting to me. And um, yeah, I remember after we'd I, I went to see Hereditary with my boyfriend and a few friends. And we were all just in the bar, like, in silence afterwards. <laughs> we just, like, got nothing left to give.
0: Aye. Yeah, <laughs> it just totally drains you, doesn't it? Especially yeah. the kind of full-on ending as well, Hereditary. Um, that's really cool. So you've also got, as you said, um, bylines and room org and things like that, and uh, being assist- ed- assistant editor at goes How's that been going?
1: Fantastic, yeah. Mm. Uh We're in our... With, with COVID, I really struggle because we mm. sort of launched in COVID. So time yeah. is really ugh, just slips away from me. But this is our second year. So, yeah, I have to just remind myself that we've achieved so much in just such a short time.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's great contributors in that as well. And I've watched a few of the um, the kind of live uh, oh, the panels. panels and things like that have been really, really fun, really enjoyable. Um, I saw behind you as well, us Scream.
1: Yes. Um, yes, From
0: it's just to your left shoulder, if I don't know if the cameras, yeah. yeah. Um, um, have you got a part in that, a piece in that as well?
1: I've got a piece in um, Hero Screen Volume 1, and mm-hmm. then I was one of the editors on Volume 2. So, cool. yeah, i yeah. got a little role in that so. as <laughs> well.
0: Nice. A Cat was one of the first external podcasts that I was on. Uh, oh,
1: fantastic. Yeah. Oh, Cat's um, amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah, it was good fun. Thank God it's Friday. Can't remember, we spoke about... Oh, uh, uh, Gerald's Game.
1: Oh, great, Gerald's yeah. Game, so
0: that was cool. Mike Flanagan is um, just somebody that's great to talk about as well. Kind of yeah. popular guy at the minute.
1: Yeah, I've got an editorial with goes about Gerald's Game as well, if you ah, nice. might fancy checking that out. Mm,
0: definitely, <laughs> Yep, I'll get uh, links to that as well in the show notes and all that, in fact. Right, so moving on to a kind of general chat about movies and cinema. Um, do you have... It's quite, it's quite a difficult question. I know when I put it to people it's quite a You're hard not gonna one.
1: say the F word, are you? The F word. Favourite.
0: Uh <laughs> do you have a preferred? Um <laughs> no, more like a, an earliest cinema memory or doesn't necessarily need to be in a cinema, like something you remember from your younger days of a movie that just kinda sticks in your head. Um for me, it was a, I can always remember going to my grandparents and watching Terminator 2 on VHS from recorded of BBC Two, I think it was, that used wow. to always be on. Um, and that was a, a kind of always stuck in my head, kind of mel- memory of that movie.
1: Yeah, well, I have two. I've, I've one at the cinema, which is, I think, it's the earliest I can remember being at the cinema. I don't know how old I was, but I, I felt small and everything mm. seemed huge. So I must have been <laughs> fairly young um, and it was to see... Uh, a re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh, cool. The old Disney film. And mm. I remember sort of in the aisles dancing with the dwarfs and they were singing and then um being petrified of the witch. So it was a real like I can remember a lot from that experience. Mm. And then as a child I was obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. So I had my VHS that I would watch like every Sunday. And um I really enjoyed that as well. So mm. Yeah, and that's informed a lot of like my journey with horror because I, I sort of always like to trace back, you know, what got me into horror, and I, I think the that's the closest, like the earliest I can get down to because mm. The Wizard of Oz is one of those films that has such a mixture of you know excitement and danger, and I think that's what I love about horror as well—that feeling of like being compelled but also
0: scared. Yeah, especially a lot of those, um, the kind of earlier Disney as well, there's a lot of horror elements in that, a lot of creepy, kind of uh, disturbing characters and kind of building off the grim fairy tale t- style of storytelling. I think Fantasia was maybe one of the ones I remember, early doors, like yeah. the, the brooms that just never die, <laughs> <laughs> Just the, just the, the idea of it is just so disturbing.
1: Yeah, when you can take, like, an inanimate object and make mm. that terrifying. Yeah. I mean, as a yeah. child, it's, yeah, when your imagination's so active.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I can definitely remember Fantasia on video. I had that. And that's the only one I really remember. But I also remember being, like, if you go to a video store and you would see posters for things, and you would immediately, when I was younger, I would just avoided them, like the plague, and it was like the it TV movie, uh, Stephen King's IT. it. I can't say I'm from Glasgow, I can't see my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and things seeing that in like video stores and just getting that same sense of, nope, fuck that, that looks worse than Fantasia. I can't watch that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. so the, the early Disney stuff, yeah, is a, a perfect kind of, a good shout for that. Um, the earliest time I remember being a cinema, I think, was Batman Forever, but it's not a good one. <laughs> it's not the worst, but it's certainly no. not a good one. Oh, that camera's not bad. <laughs> Yeah, Um, and I was going to say, do you have a favourite movie moment? Is there something that you kind of go back to all the time um, that it just kind of brings up feelings in you that either transport it can transport you back to a certain time in your life, or it just washes over you and you can enjoy it no matter what.
1: Oh, so when you said to me choose a (laughs) favourite movie moment, I just went. That's my favourite moment, but it Mm. does not... What you've just described, it does not fit those categories.
0: (laughs) It can can be totally (laughs) anything, that's fine.
1: So my favourite review moment is Leatherface's first appearance in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, (laughs) Hands down, I didn't even have to think Mm. about it. It's just everything. It's it's the score over the top. It's his first appearance in my favourite horror film. It's the way it's shot. It's the way it's lit. It's that first like, you're not quite taking in what you're seeing, so you're thinking, you know, who is this and what does it represent? And it's just such a beautiful moment, and for me, it's nothing. I'm half, again, it's back to that danger and excitement because I'm like, the game is on, but, like, part of me is, like, terrified as well.
0: Um, So you're saying, yeah, obviously the the first point of Leatherface showing up is when he he hauls the, kind of, basement door open, is that right?
1: He sort, yeah. He appears at the door, and then he 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 hits Kirk with the hammer, and then he pulls the door back, and you get it's that sort of like um, abattoir style door, and you get that like. Sort of thought like that, sort of. I couldn't even describe what the sound is, but it's just like this rattle from hell is Mm. the only way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. And it just, I mean, it's my favorite horror film, so I've watched it innumerable times, but it just, it just gives me goosebumps. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a great scene. And to my shame, I saw the remake first. Um, Okay. Because. I was quite squeamish at a younger age, so I kind of avoided that. avoided the kind of video nasty era, filter and things like that as well. Like, Eye trauma horror. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, obviously the, the the perception of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it's blood, guts and violence mm. everywhere, but it's quite subtle in its, in its ways. Um, probably if it was released now, I don't know if you would even get it as an 18 certificate. Certainly wouldn't get banned. But no. um, So I think... The, I possibly saw the remake in a cinema, and then I went right. I'll go back and watch it. And obviously, it's much better. Um, <laughs> it's not really. I think it was, was it Jessica Biel that maybe launched her career yeah. in the, the remake. Um, so overall, with the franchise, then a the Texas Chainsaw. So is that one? Do you enjoy it? Do you like the silliness of part two? And no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Fair
1: enough. No, it's 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 a dedication to the '74 film, and it stops there. Really, really? Oh, well, fair <laughs> enough. I
0: think I've, I've seen I've, I've seen the beginning. I've seen Leatherface. I've saw the recent one, which was last year. Was it? Mm-hmm. Um I think was it just called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or Yeah. one of these sequel, reboot, <laughs> sequel type things where yeah. they brought back the older characters and the original, final girl, and just made a complete hit of it. Um, In saying that, it was 72 minutes or something, so it didn't take yeah. up too much time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's going to be a sequel to that, actually. But, um, it's certainly a, a franchise that has maybe lasted longer than you would think, especially with... Leatherface isn't someone who... Is, Maybe, maybe I'm misreading them, but he's not someone that like stalks and haunts the way a Freddy or a Michael does, or even a Jason. He's yeah. very much um, to his own space and kind of likes to stick to that. So it's yeah. quite strange how it's managed to develop as such a as much as iconic as he originally was, but developing into a huge franchise.
1: Yeah, I think you know, in the '74 film, he's he's very sympathetic, and when you mm. look at those iconic villains, you know, Freddie, Jason, Michael. It's like I think Leatherface does bring something different to no pun here to the table. Um that <laughs> <laughs> uh, I enjoy watching. And I enjoy Sally as a final girl. Mm. I, I think she's, you know, that, that that last 20 minutes is like, to me, it's like a therapy session. It's <laughs> I find it very pigeon and very cathartic.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. I get what you mean about him being sympathetic as well. He's very. He almost seems like it's the influence of the family almost that have pushed him to what he is. That he's the muscle essentially, and they use him for that. Um, and yeah, and as certain elements, it's what they don't show that gives you the proper. Exactly, heebie-jeebies for a better word. Um, <laughs> so that was great. Eh? Yeah. I mean, does it give you a warm, fuzzy feeling? Then if you said it's cathartic, so that's <laughs> that's fine. And you see Leatherface walking on walking on set. I don't know, no what I mean? <laughs> Rocking up and dragging someone to their death. That's that's fine.
1: It's... I always say it's like as someone who like deals with anxiety on a day to day basis. Mm. For me, it's. It makes me think, well, the things that I worry about are so trivial Mm. by comparison to what I see on screen that I can think, if Sally can, you know, escape all that, then I can, you know, face going into work today.
0: (laughs) I think um, with myself, looking back at Texas Chainsaw and then obviously done an episode of this with Zoe, who Zoe made me watch Lars von Trier movies.
1: Oh, I'm Uh, a big Lars fan. mm.
0: Yeah, I'm not. <laughs> I don't do extreme. I really struggle with extreme horror and uh, extreme cinema. Maybe is the, the better way to describe some of our stuff. I think there's maybe a couple that I could get on board with, but I yeah, uh, I watched them. Um, the house that Jack built and Antichrist and Nymphomaniac one and two. Um, uh, it wasn't it for me but then <laughs> I've tried to kind of broaden my horizons a wee bit because obviously she's uh, Zoe's got the uh, bloody obsession um, podcast which is good I found footage thing yeah but it's found footage extreme horror so no uh,
1: excuses now Andy <laughs> the
0: thing is it's I watched Megan is missing
1: <gasps> oh Fucking hell, so did man. I and I'm not someone that really dabbles in the extreme but I thought oh I'm gonna watch it because mm-hmm. Zoe's covering it and Wow,
0: for a film where nothing again, like a lot of film footage, nothing happens until even ten minutes to the end. That image will stay. That image will stay with me forever, and it was horrific. And I can't say I enjoyed it. <laughs> 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 but uh, let's go into your director of choice now. Um, <laughs> that's a good segue. That was not it. It was brilliant. Well, we're going to go from someone who was stuck in. A metal container to someone who's stuck in a box. <laughs> this is the kind of natural way to go. Megan is missing to uh, this movie, which we'll come on to in a second. But um so the director you've chosen then is Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense. The the guy who well I don't know if he necessarily invented the twist in movies, was certainly a big purveyor of it in early mm-hmm. cinema. Um We'll come on to the three movies, but what is your relationship with Hitchcock in general? Like you have it on your Twitter bio that you're a Hitchcock massive fan of a Hitch- massive fan of a Hitchcock.
1: <laughs> 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 I'm gonna change it to that now, though. Aye,
0: massive fan of a Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> Do like the odd Hitchcock, yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, You've said you're a massive fan of Hitchcock in your Twitter bios. What is your relationship really with Hitchcock? How you how you found him? What you yeah? What's you? Is he good? Is he good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: um. So Hitchcock's been a huge part of my life since I was around the age of seventeen, which curiously is around the same time that I got into horror. Um, I can't recall like specifically my first experience with Hitchcock, but my first memory is watching Psycho um, at around that age and just being like really immersed and having that experience of this real like cinematic experience. Um, And then I just started making my way through his filmography. And I think, you know, Hitchcock's all about telling stories through image. And I really began to look out for and enjoy his techniques and how he makes films, the themes he explores, the relationships that he puts on screen and how as well, definitely the more that I've dug into Hitchcock, more about how his films talk to each other and interact with each other as well as a body of work. Okay. I think um, you know, people often say like Master of Suspense and things like that. But I think Hitchcock in his own way is its own genre, you know. Uh, There's nothing else quite like it. He creates like a universe that's just quintessentially hitchcockian Mm -hmm. and i think you know there's a dreaminess to his work that i really enjoy as well you know i like how he explores gender and fear and you know on the note of dream dreaminess as well i think his work always seems to sit with me it rests and it stays and you know it enters my subconscious Mm -hmm. um I, I always say that like my work's never done with Hitchcock, you know, there's just so much to dig into. And he's got such a huge body of work. And um, you know, his influence as well is something that's interesting, everything from like Brian De Palma to actually Basic Instinct, which I watched over Christmas, and I was like, wow, there's so much Hitchcock in this. Yep. You know, his films mm-hmm. can be like highly entertaining, but you know, they can also be watched on a more like a deeper level where Underneath there's multiple layers and complexities and I really enjoy taking those apart and
0: mm-hmm. I
1: just get lost in Hitchcock and I think he was someone who was so focused on the audience and how the audience is always feeling and thinking and mm-hmm. he really brings you into his films. Yeah. You know, it through through image and editing, you know, he creates mood and emotion. Um, he conveys what his characters are thinking and feeling and he somehow makes us feel like that as well mm-hmm. um and then I guess I'll just finish by saying like I knew that I'd always as a writer wanted to create my own contribution to Hitchcock criticism mm-hmm. but um I needed to find a way of expressing that that felt like true to me um, so I established my series with Moving Pictures Film Club, uh, yeah. which is called Hitchcock's Women, yeah. and that's a look at the women of Hitchcock's films through a female perspective. Because I think it's a it's a world that's very dominated by male criticism and like male scholarship. And I also think you know we're forever analyzing like the Jimmy Stewarts and the Cary Grants. But, you know what about the women of his films? And I think you know. I have, when I have conversations with people about Hitchcock, they sometimes say, oh, "How can you be a woman and like Hitchcock?" Um, <laughs> yeah. Which I th- which is always interesting to me because I can understand that, but at mm-hmm. the same time, through my journey with Hitchcock, um, I've realised that you know, while he is, well, there's a quote from a, a, f- a female scholar that really like sums it up the best. I think for me, and her quote is. Hitchcock is neither utterly misogynistic nor largely sympathetic to women and their plight in the patriarchy, but his work is characterised by a thoroughgoing ambivalence to femininity. And it's that ambivalence that I love. I love the ambiguity in Hitchcock.
0: Just what you're saying there about the um, the a lot of people focus on, as you're saying, Cary Grant, James Stewart. The Hitchcock movies, for me, certainly the ones that I've seen, they wouldn't be the same without a strong female lead from Psycho to Rear Window to Vertigo. It's almost like a, we're going to come on to talk about Rope later on, which maybe doesn't have, which is more of a a, a kind of centralised story about three people almost kind of playing themselves against each, not playing themselves against each other, but like a battle of wits. Um, But the, the other two have got a very important female lead with her whether it's integer, as you're saying, with the ambiguity, maybe not strong in terms of feminism, but important in their role throughout the movies. And as everyone knows about Psycho and the the uh, the, the big scenes in Psycho and Vertigo, which is my favourite of his, which I think is quite a basic one to pick. But, um,
1: There's nothing
0: basic about Vertigo. No, no. <laughs> but I um, absolutely love Vertigo. And, and that has a mystery around... A very important female character. Um but yeah, as you're saying, like if you you can you're coming at it from a female point of view. It's very different from me coming from it as a white guy. Like <laughs> it's very basic for me not I keep saying the word basic, I don't know why I'm saying that. It's very easy for me to view it in a way of well, how can they say it's not he's not treating women well when he's very strong female characters, if you know what I mean? I'm not saying that's what I say, but it very easy for me to look at it from that point of view.
1: Oh, and I think so often these women are drivers of narrative mm-hmm. and they have agency that's often overlooked. Yeah. Um, and so many of his male leads have got a real effeminacy to them mm-hmm. um, that that's really interesting to to analyze. And you know, Hitchcock often subverts, the stars that he's playing with, like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart, and what their reputation was in Hollywood and what they were known for, and mm-hmm. I enjoy what he does with that as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll come on then to the first one. Um, we're going through these in the order of release, and this is 1941's "Suspicion," starring Cary Grant as Johnny and Joan Fontaine as Lena. 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 Um, and. <laughs> Do you want to give us just a quick synopsis then of suspicion?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, Lena is a wealthy heiress who marries a lovable but roguish man named Johnny. She quickly discovers he is, by varying degrees, a liar and an embezzler whose behaviour grows ever stranger, leading her to suspect his ultimate objective is to murder her for her money.
0: There was something strange about Johnny Asgard. I knew it long before I married him. Anything you could put your finger on, and yet you were always conscious of it. Conscious of something vague, restless, frightening. It was our first meeting on the hilltop.
1: Now, what did you think I'll do, kill you? Nothing less than murder can justify such a violent self-defense.
0: It's so easy to think clear. I knew Johnny loved me as desperately as I loved him. And yet I remember now that even his reassurances seemed almost sinister. I want nothing but to spend the rest of my life with you. But if you were to die first, I... If I were to die first. From that moment on, my life was filled with fear. Not of Johnny, I loved him too much to really be afraid. But the fear of not knowing, the agony of waiting, of wondering how it would happen, of waking in the middle of the night, shaking with terror, and finding myself praying that whatever it was, it would be done quickly and with mercy. These are the facts. The evidence before the crime. I wanted you to know, in case I met a violent end. Um... So this was a first time watch for me. Very interesting oh, seeing.
1: Amazing.
0: I didn't even know Hitchcock made movies this far back. <laughs> like that no way. How, oh, you've no, got so
1: many like, know, to come.
0: <laughs> I know. It's just one of those uh, blind spots of mine. Um, I, I know the big ones. There's the kind of... And actually speaking to, uh, again, a different podcast last night, He hadn't even heard of this movie either, and he's a big film head like Rob. See, this is why um, I
1: chose it. Yeah, because um, like when you said to me choose three films, I was mm, like, okay, I'm going to choose one that I love, one that really gets talked about, and you know one that deserves more attention and mm-hmm. this is the one that i thought maybe people not so familiar with so yeah i'm
0: good
1: to, it's glad to i'm really good to hear it's a first watch for you
0: yeah i really thoroughly enjoyed it um oh, i was reading awesome. yeah reading up on it before as well that uh joan fontaine it's the only oscar uh winner in a hitchcock movie yeah
1: any actor in any hitchcock film yeah, yeah incredible incredible
0: yeah, and she is fantastic as uh, as Lena. Um, with herself and Cary Grant as the main focus, they have you do have other kind of external characters, um, but the main focus is on obviously the two of them, their relationship, and what you think is maybe you know, cat and mouse. Maybe isn't the right word to describe it, but
1: no, that's for our next film.
0: <laughs> yeah that is definitely for the next one but do you know what I mean they're kind of um, is, uh Lena I keep, of course I've just got it written down I'm very phonetic in the way I talk <laughs> um, her suspicion of Johnny is what drives the movie forward and he is obviously quite a shady character how do you find Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine together in those again almost like a kind of not it's a battle of wits from one side where Lena knows what's going on or she thinks she does and she's trying to almost pry it out of Johnny and the two of them bouncing off each other. They're, I mean, they are fantastic, but what was your kind of thoughts on them?
1: Yeah, so... um I think it's interesting just to note that uh, Joan Fontaine had worked with Hitchcock on Rebecca previously um, oh, okay. as well. Um, this is Cary Grant's first film with Hitchcock. He'd go on to make Notorious to Catch a Thief in North by Northwest as well. Mm-hmm. And I think, as I sort of indicated earlier, Hitchcock uses Cary Grant here in a very interesting way. You know, he's both charming and sinister. Yeah. And I feel like Hitchcock probably got a lot of enjoyment in casting Grant and playing him against type.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, although, as m- maybe we can, if we've got time, we'll touch upon how he was limited in actually what he was allowed to do with Grant when it comes to the the ending of the film.
0: Right. But okay. I think yeah.
1: um going back again to those strong female protagonists, this is told through the eyes of Lena and you know i think what's so great about it is that we're almost in suspicion of Johnny with her and mm-hmm. we're looking for clues and we're looking for evidence that seems to be present but then hitchcock balances it so beautifully by making us fall for Johnny and his magnetism as well right
0: mm. yeah <laughs> there's there's a magnetism and there also seems to be you kind of touched on it a, a bit with how he uses Cary Grant feminine type of way, is there's a vulnerability about him, which you he wears quite openly, it seems, in the scenes that you see of him. Um, and yeah, it just, it's... it's What I really enjoyed about this, obviously, as I said, I didn't know. I didn't realise Rebecca was before this, actually, so I did know that he'd made older movies. Um, but it's the way it felt like... Of that time period, with the way it's shot and the way it's lit and everything, but wait, and I mean that in a positive, not in a negative. Um And it's focused on Joan Fontaine, and it he catches her. She's got such a, a kind of stern and a stubbornness to find out and get to the bottom of what's happening with her husband. Obviously, she thinks she's going to try and kill her. But she would try and find out then if but she portrays it fantastically. And I think with Hitchcock's lighting and everything and the shots he gets of her, it works so well with Joan Fonte's performance, obviously getting the Oscar as well.
1: Yeah. And like you say, this is we're in the forties with Hitchcock, you know, he's making things like Rebecca when he'll go on to make Shadow of a Doubt and notorious, incredible pictures and you know, he's now in America as well. I think that's an- another important thing to consider. He had his British periods and then his American period, and this is right at the start. Rebecca was the first, and then Suspicion was the second. And you know, although he's in America, both Rebecca and Suspicion still retain that sense of Britishness in America. You know, so we, I think this is a really good example of him in an almost transitional period between those two phases of his career. Um, And I also think it's important as well to acknowledge some of the female contributions to the film. You know, um, Joan Harrison, who was Hitchcock's secretary, but then became um, a screenwriter. She worked with Alma Reville, who was Hitchcock's wife, and they wrote some of the screenplay along with um, Samson Raphaelson. So there's a lot of female um, energy that's going into this picture which i think really comes through. Yeah. And then i wanted to just touch briefly on like the the idea of i don't know if you've heard of pure cinema, which is okay. something that hitchcock had a real loyalty to um, mm-hmm. and often spoke about, which is basically telling stories through images and movement, so no words. And i think those moments that we remember in hitchcock and probably the most successful scenes in or memorable scenes in this film are those like pure cinema moments such as when they're playing the anagram game and she sees the word like murderer spelt out it's a small moment and you could be forgiven for overlooking it but it's vital because Mm -hmm. that's so pivotal for Lena's you know thought patterns and and then we've got the famous that I absolutely wanted to touch on the the drink sequence where Cary Grant makes a the drink of milk
0: yeah and the light <laughs> under the glass it yeah. must have been to just kind of illuminate the, the the milk as it's coming through there
1: so so they put a light bulb into the glass to right. to light it up and hmm. you know you've got hitchcock corrupting something as innocent and as you know as innocent as a glass of milk and making us think differently about it which i just think is incredible and You've got Cary Grant now in total silhouette, so he seems threatening and suspicious, and you know where we find ourselves applying meaning to something that otherwise is just completely routine. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely. I was going to kind of touch on that actually about the uh, the anagram scene. One thing that maybe I thought that Lena seemed to go very quickly from happily married and in love to oh fuck, he's a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> and I can understand it for the purposes of propelling the, the plot forward. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. Not to really to the detriment of the film, but just something that kind of stuck out for me a wee bit. It does seem like she goes very quickly to that murder point. Um, did you find that when we were watching it? Or you...
1: I feel. I feel you've got enough beats because hmm. you know you've got. She finds out she he's got no job when she's married him, so the new house is all on credit. Then yeah. her family heirloom chairs. He sells them. They go missing. Then he loses the job that he does get, but doesn't tell her. No. So I think there's these snowball moments. But I, I know what you mean. It's a very heightened <laughs> moment, isn't yeah. it? And it's I think for for 1941, it's uh, we we'll let them off. I think.
0: Yeah. Oh no, it's fine. <laughs> as I said, it's totally not. I'm maybe watching with it being a first time view as well. I'm watching it through a different lens. Like if I was to go back and rewatch it i probably see that scene totally differently.
1: Yeah, Um, And I wonder if part of your response is because it's Cary Grant and it's much harder for you, given what you know of him already Mm. and what you come with, or just any audience member, maybe it is so hard to actually believe that he will be a murderer.
0: Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, Coming on to the the ending. So Mm -hmm. we've had Lena going through this almost... I wouldn't say a descent into paranoia, but certainly a a suspicious um, intent about her towards Johnny. The ending is Lena's decided to go to her mum's, or she says she's going to her mum's anyway, and Johnny offers to drive her. Now, you mentioned a bit about what the studio would allow him to do with Cary Grant. Mm -hmm. Because the way I thought this movie was going to end was either there would be a scuffle. The car would go off the side of the road with Johnny in it. It's kind of what you would... The way the film had been playing out, maybe something's going to come to that. Or maybe Johnny is actually a murderer. Maybe he wins. Maybe Lena falls off the cliff. But there is a bit of a subversion there. He tries to save her, which then she tries to not let him save her. It's a very strange <laughs> kind of confusion. There's hands everywhere. She tries, he almost <laughs> falls out of the car. Um, and then he opens up to her about everything, said he was planning on killing himself, but he decided not to and he was going to just face up to the, the per, eh, not perjury charges. Um, I can't remember the word from fraud charges, let's just say fraud yeah. charges. Yeah. Um, and then Lena says, well, we can work it out, basically. And they drive off into the sunset. In my head, that had always been part of Johnny's plan. The way I read it, that maybe he didn't want to kill her because he did actually love her. So maybe he's been tricking it. Again, this is my reading of it in a first and only view. Maybe he's been, maybe he knows she was looking at him, reading the letters before he went into the bath and he leaves them in a coat pocket and then, because at the end, it's just the way he stretches his hand over her back as they're driving away. It was quite a subtle. I thought he had essentially got what he was aiming to get, and she was going to settle his debt, and he would still be able to be with the woman he loved. But what you're saying about Cary Grant was that something that was done because they weren't allowed to do certain things?
1: So, the, this is um, it's fascinating to hear your interpretation. And like the ending of suspicion is just something that comes in for so much comment and theory. Mm. So. And I think as well, you know, perhaps it, perhaps it's the film's shortcoming in a way because it does feel quite abrupt,
0: mm-hmm. you know.
1: Um, but Hitchcock did face a lot of challenges with this. So in the novel, so Suspicion's based on a novel mm-hmm. um, by Francis Ills that's called, oh, um, I think it's called Before the Fact. Um, before the fact or after the fact. So um, in the novel, Johnny's drink that he gives to Lena is poisonous, right, and okay. she drinks it. Um, but jo- Joan Fontaine has spoken of how endings that were tested where Johnny was the murderer did not sit well with audiences. It did not test well. Okay, audiences did not want to see Cary Grant as a villain. Right. Um. So Hitchcock himself had a, an end in which he was trying to push um, where Lena writes a letter to her mother revealing that Johnny is planning to poison her and then she takes the drink but then once she's took the drink before she dies she says to Johnny, ''oh will you post that letter for me darling?'' And so the last scene that Hitchcock had in mind, which is so Hitchcocky, and I can just imagine him like laughing to himself, mm. is Johnny like whistling his way to the post box, posting the letter that effectively condemns him.
0: And that was it. <laughs> that would have been the final scene. That would have been yeah. the final
1: scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but the actual ending we get, as I say, it is a little bit abrupt, but I think it's important to note that Hitchcock endings are are really ambiguous and it's such a point of interest for me because, okay, things seem tied up, you know, neat in a bow, like the ends of Rear Window, but actually there's a lot still here to be resolved. And I think, you know, when a couple unite, despite differences, like in like in Rear Window Marnie, you know, there's still this overall feeling, actually, that the future's far from harmonious.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, with, uh, Lena and Johnny are driving back to a very uncertain future um, whether he is a murderer or not is, is very ambiguous at the end of this. I thought he was it maybe been part of his plan as I kind of explained earlier um, but he he could still have that in him. It's almost like past the end of the book, past the end of the movie there's still as you're saying a whole other story to be told there that we just don't don't know and can only, get, only our imagination can kind of work on it,
1: yeah. And what's trust going to look like in that relationship exactly. now? It's yeah. yeah. non existent,
0: pretty much, <laughs> isn't it? So, that was the first one suspicion. I'm going to move on to the second one now, which we have touched on a little bit when discussing Megan is missing. Um, and it is <laughs> 1948's Rope, starring James Stewart as Rupert, John Dahl as Brandon, and Farley Granger as Philip.
1: don't
0: It's only a month, Janet. A month,
1: please.
0: Sorry, I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations, David. No. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a two thirty appointment. I'm in staying York. right here.
1: Oh, afraid you'll say yes?
0: I'll see you tonight at Brandon's party. Okay, you can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye.
1: that's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely, and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, And the two who were responsible for everything—Brandon Shaw
0: and Philip Morgan. Mouse, cat, mouse. Which is the cat and which is the mouse? Enough of that. Easy. I'll take care of your I just assume kill you as kill
1: him. Okay, so the film begins with two young men, Brandon and Philip, who have strangled their selected victim, former classmate and friend Kenneth, before storing him in, yes, a wooden chest. <laughs> They then serve dinner to a room full of guests, including Kenneth's family and girlfriend, believing that murder is a superior art form that may only be undertaken by an anointed few. However, their old schoolmaster, Rupert, who is also in attendance, begins to suspect them and eventually uncovers their heinous crime.
0: Perfect. That's, that's, yeah, that's, It's a very, um, again, what we've spoke about with Hitchcock, it seems straightforward in its premise. But it's fantastic. I had seen Rope before. This is my fourth or fifth time watching Rope, I think. I think it's very accessible just being as well eighty minutes. An eighty minute movie is really easy for me to watch. Um <laughs> so I would imagine for certainly a movie in nineteen forty eight, the opening of this is very dark, violent. Um which what's the history kind of with rope and its approach to the subject matter, as I said, it's a very, I can't imagine very many audiences in 1948 would have seen something like that going into, it's even a Hitchcock movie.
1: Yeah, so so Rope's based on a play by Patrick Hamilton, which is based on an actual murder carried out by two law students mm. um, who kidnapped a 14-year-old boy under the pretense of conducting the perfect murder, Um so, yeah, I think, you know, Rope's actually Hitchcock's first film in colour, which, okay. you know, he uses particularly well with the cyclorama, the backdrop of the mm-hmm. city outside, and he uses that to communicate the temperature of the room and, mm-hmm. you know, when the situations become intense, you know, there's the sunset shoes and the neon signs and things like that. Um, and then we've also got you know an example of portrayal of of queerness which runs throughout hitchcock's work you know from everything from rebecca to north by northwest mm-hmm. arguably the birds i've written a piece about that on moving pictures um okay. even marnie and then strangers on a train so hitchcock's exploring something there that not a lot of directors are in 1948 um the film was not a success uh Okay. And I think it's interesting to consider why. And, you know, what I admire about it is a, a lot of around its technique and its filming, and, and Hitchcock being an experimentalist here. Uh, you know, he's known for his recurring themes and techniques, but actually I've seen him as always being something of an innovator as well, you know, in tandem with that. And this rope is a prime example of that, you know, He'd spoke of how all the movement of both the actors and the cameras was marked out using blackboards and chalk. Um, Tables and chairs were moved by prop staff as the filming was happening. So this is all in one set. Walls are being slid away. Staff are taking uh, glasses off actors as they're moving at a shot. Um, And we've got a series of like 10 minute takes, which... I think must have caused, and I think I've actually read Jimmy Stewart talking about the anxiety that this added to the okay. atmosphere on set. That if you made a mistake in the ninth minute, you had to go back to the start again, Me? and just what that must have done to create that like pressure cooker environment, mm. you know. Um, and I think what's particularly fascinating when we think about Hitchcock in this film is that he was someone who was very focused on like the editing and control. And mm. this film dispels that technique, so I think it's a very rare and interesting entry in his filmography. Yeah.
0: So was it was it done as one one take?
1: No, a, no. A ten, like a ten ten takes.
0: Ten, okay. Yeah. But so yeah, if you were God, that must have been. You can imagine, obviously, we've had a few things like that the past few years like, that have been edited, <laughs> like with nineteen seventeen and Birdman, but back then. It would have been literally you had to get it spot on or you were pretty much forcing everyone in an extra day's work, whatever it could have been, you know what I mean? Like, it's full on. Yeah, um, and on
1: top of that, you've got cameras that, as big as, like, washing machines that are being, like, moved <laughs> around and, and things are sliding everywhere. It mm-hmm. must have been just such a tense atmosphere and Jimmy Stewart vowed. I'll never work with Hitchcock again after this. (laughs) But uh, he reneged on that, of course. That's that's understandable. (laughs) Thankfully.
0: Yeah. Um, I was actually going to ask you about the style of the movie because it did feel like a play um, watching it. And it's obviously a very uh, intentional move by Hitchcock because it does feel different from, as we spoke about with Suspicion, it feels different from a Hollywood movie. It's it felt like a filmed play and it's fantastic just because it's always from the one side. It's like, if you're watching anything from friends to the the Hamilton musical that was released during lockdown, it's got that one, not one camera, but certainly majority of the angle is a, is one in the same uh, with different zooms and everything. And it's really effective in this. It's great. It opens up the room to Mm. on in the scenes that you're watching. It opens up and you're looking for, Now, obviously, your whole whole focus is mainly on the wooden box where um, David uh, is being crammed. Um, But it certainly opens you up to maybe focusing on even the other guests when there's a wide shot, even if your your main focus can still be James Stewart um, and it can still be uh, Brandon and Philip, but you're just more attuned to what's going on. You're more in tune with everything going on around about it.
1: Yeah, and these performances are all so complementary. The chemistry between Brandon and Philip
0: mm-hmm. is
1: just fascinating. The fact that we're watching this unfold in real time as well yeah. just adds to that. And, you know, it's got a wicked sense of humor to it, Rope, as well, which is one of the reasons that I love it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know the, the constant flow. We've got entrances, exits, things are always changing, although they are in that one location. And I think it's interesting about the fact that we as you said about the opening scene we see the murder so we are we are in that space with brandon and philip mm-hmm. we share in the murder and we know the bodies in the trunk and but i think it poses that moral question of do we want brandon and philip to get away with it or do we not
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i, I, I think by the end, I definitely didn't want Brandon to get away with it. I thought he was a bit of a smug prick. <laughs> and I think he's, he talks about his own superiority superiority for being allowed to kill because he is better. He is a better than anyone else. And I think his character speaks about um, James Stewart's Rupert uh, almost having taught them that, or certainly that was their interpretation of his teachings. Mm-hmm. Um and it's interesting the uh, Rupert's character development where he is very open about his feelings towards murder to the, the party. He's almost playing the playing the room and being controversial, whether he believed it or not. And his, his opinion sort of softening on it when he faces up to the reality of what he was teaching.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mm. think that's one of the fascinating things about it. And I think, again, as we were talking before about... Cary Grant and how Hitchcock utilized him. I think it's interesting here to look at his first use of Jimmy Stewart. This is his first film. Okay. And I think he's uncovering something slightly perverse and disagreeable about him. You know, mm-hmm. obviously that'll build and build until we get to uh, vertigo where it reaches its height. Um, but I think, you know, he he enjoyed tapping into something opposite in, in Stewart, yeah. you know, though I'm not sure, actually, I think he was conscious of it with Grant, with Stewart, I'm, I'm not sure if he was. I and mean, it was often said that Jimmy Stewart was the man that Hitchcock identified with and Cary Grant was the man he wanted to be, um, which I think is interesting. But yeah, onto the question of Rupert then, his morality in terms of the end and and this notion that it, it the Superman theory of only certain people who can commit murder is essentially a theory that he's communicated to his loyal students Brandon and Mm Philip and they've taken it literally you know as as Rupert says himself you've given my words a meaning I never dreamt of Mm -hmm. you know but perhaps he should have been more careful in the messages he gave and it puts that question mark of culpability over him I think Mm -hmm. and we're back again at that ambiguous ending that I spoke about earlier, and yeah. I think while Rupert certainly is not a, a murderer in the practical sense, mm. but any notion of him as a hero has got to come under some serious scrutiny, don't you yeah, think?
0: Definitely, he's the person that found them out. I wouldn't necessarily see he is the the heroic type. He's just the one that found it out. He was clever enough. He was smarter than them. Um, which would probably be, certainly for Brandon, would be a bit of an insult if he, <laughs> if he was told that at the time. Um, one of the interesting things, and know we spoke about the kind of camera work in this one, the audio as well, the sound design. So if, it felt very much like a party, like a party that you were at. There was a scene and I think there's a couple of guests turned up and James Stewart standing behind the, the main conversation, mm-hmm. but you're still kind of hearing what they're talking about. There's not yeah. like a, a focused audio on the conversation that you're really meant to be hearing. I really thought found that really interesting because you were, sometimes you'll watch a movie and there'll just be a rabble, but you're able to pick up conversations on everyone in that room at different times, even if you're not meant to. <laughs> do you think it was that intentional then I'm assuming absolutely. it would have been yeah. it was really come, interesting how he very it done.
1: famously used lots of overlap and dialogue at, mm. at the same time simultaneously and I think yeah, absolutely you're spot on I think he almost wants us to go back and there's those nuggets for us to pick up and it's not just what people are saying but it's how people are, who's looking at who you know, mm. Rupert might be talking to um, Brandon and Phillip's uh, like their the help them they're, mm. they're made. Yeah. But um he's still looking at them when they're having their conversations, so he's he's half in his conversation, but he's got one eye on them as well. And yeah, we can see that and Hitchcock shows us that and I think that's important.
0: Yeah, it's great. And as you're saying with the the I think James Stewart's just so watchable. <laughs> he just <laughs> he is, it's not it's not like a, a groundbreaking take on anything. But just any time he's been most of what I've seen him in now probably has been Hitchcock. He's just his voice is great. He just, he's... We're Cary Grant's the Hollywood kind of pin-up guy, as you've said, the one that Hitchcock wanted to be. There's a kind of lived-in quality to James Stewart, especially on Rope. Feels like a teacher that's maybe been teaching for a long time and maybe doesn't believe what he, some of the words he's saying, but it's just a, a homeliness to him, maybe, is the, the, the right description without looking homely, as in, he's a very handsome <laughs> guy. But yeah, there's just a... More of an everyman feeling about James Stewart.
1: Exactly. And I think Mm. that's why Hitchcock selected him. You know, he's the quintessential all-American man. And I think he knew audiences wanted to see that. Mm -hmm. But as I've said as well, I think he also wanted to pollute that a bit as well. Yeah, Just have fun with it and be like, that's your American dream. But, you know, underneath that, there's something that's just more corrupt and perverse.
0: Mm -hmm. And he gets the funniest lines as well when he's... Is it it Brandon's mum or something I can't remember the exact character where she's always trying to explain something it was the thing with the thing next to that other thing and he gets those like just takes the piss out of like anytime she asks him yeah. a question and they just land f- perfectly it shows you his different range as well because he goes yeah. from casually conversational to really funny and jovial and then to serious is the finale for him and he just nails every part of it
1: yeah, and I love when he comes back and he has that that final act where everyone's gone. He's left as well, but he comes back under the pretense that he's left his cigarette case, yeah. um, which of course he hasn't. It's just an excuse to get him back in into the room. Mm. And um, Brandon's like, "Will you have a drink? Do you want a short one or a long one?" He's like, "A long one." And he's like, <laughs> "It's great to sit here with company and a drink. And, you know, he's not going anywhere, and he's letting them know that." <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, and everyone knows that that person at a party as well I've <laughs> been that person at a party 3 o'clock in the morning someone's phoned you a taxi and you forget to go for it sorry, really <laughs> what happens um, so that was Rope um, absolutely loved this as I said, I've seen it many a time and probably one of my favourite Hitchcocks but well, very go and the James Stewart ones just land for me as well um, I just think he's fantastic um, there was one thing I was going to say actually before we move on to my third one so, know we kind of spoke about Cary Grant and what Hitchcock was and wasn't allowed to do with him as an actor because of his his presence and his uh, reputation, maybe. Uh, Bates, Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. There's a look at him that is very Cary Grant-ish. He is the tall, slicked-back, handsome, chiselled features to an extent. Um, I wonder if there's an element of Hitchcock with that that has... What's the word? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Uh, like he couldn't have the play in Cary Grant, so he got it through another way.
1: Okay, so it's almost like a carrying through of with with Anthony Perkins of what he was doing with Cary Grant. Yeah,
0: that just came into my head there. So, he, so he wasn't allowed to. He, he got the the handsome. The guy is very similar in features to Cary Grant, so he mm. wasn't able to do what he wanted with Cary Grant. So when it got to Anthony Perkins in Psycho. Very similar in looks, and maybe not as handsome, but there's certainly similarities there. He felt he was able to now do that a bit more with the handsome Hollywood guy. If he, if, it just came into my head there, so I don't know if that's
1: okay. So almost like a second attempt, but where I can do it the way I wanted to
0: do it the first time. Yeah, not nearly, not necessarily retelling the story, but having that um more of an influence over a Cary Grant substitute, if mm. you know what I mean. I'm maybe again. I'm maybe just looking at a different way.
1: Yeah, I think, I think, I think he picked Anthony Perkins for that role because you know there was a vulnerability in him, there was an effeminacy, there was a, a fragility and a, a boyishness, and he'd gone through a lot in his personal life. I know that made him feel quite connected to the character of Norman. Um, but I certainly think it's interesting to look at Hitchcock's relationships to his actors and how he used them. Um, both how we both used the Hollywood status to his advantage, and sub- like as we've talked about, throughout, how he subverted that as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. So that was just a wee kind of mind mind model I had there <laughs> <laughs> trying to get across the across the page. Um, on to the last one now, um, and this is Marnie from 1964, with Tippi Hedren as Marnie and Sean Connery as Mark. Marnie's been a bad girl
1: and if she's allowed a second chance
0: she'll be even worse you don't love me I'm just something you caught
1: that's right you are I've caught something really wild this time haven't I Sean Connery and Tippi Hedren star in a masterful tale of obsession
0: I can, I can. What sort of demon lives inside Marnie?
1: Uh, so Marnie is a story of a woman whose past is catching up with her, as she's repeatedly plagued by compulsions to lie, steal, and adopt multiple identities. All this collapses when, after one robbery, she's caught by her employer and love interest, Mark Rutland. A troubled courtship then plays out between them and we learn she frequently enjoys flashbacks connected to events in her childhood as she battles to unlock a memory that may explain why for all her life her mother has remained distant from her.
0: Um, This was a strange one for me. I found this a very strange... Is first first time? Yeah, it's another first time. It's a very strange film. Mm. Um, I didn't know, so even before... Once you sent me the three movies, I didn't look at cast lists. I already knew about uh, James Stewart being in Rope because I'd seen it before. I didn't know Cary Grant was in Suspicion. And then, so Sean Connery rocked up in this. Um, <laughs> and I read a wee bit into it that apparently the studios were pushing for, because this was Connery, early Bond. He wasn't yep. a necessarily a household name. Tippi Hedren wasn't exactly huge either. Um, I think there was, was it was uh, Grace Kelly they wanted for this.
1: Indeed, um, yeah.
0: Mm, I read yeah. a wee bit about that. Um, but the people on Monaco didn't want it.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> Which is great. No. Hitchcock bought the, the rights to the book by Winston Graham, who's the same guy who wrote the Poldark series, people might know. Right, okay. Um Yeah, fun fact. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, he bought it with grace in mind. He wanted to keep that relationship going. And initially she, she wrote to him and she was on board. But then, yeah, um, she was married to... Um, his Royal Serene Highness, the Prince of Monaco, and it was decided that um you know this this she was not going to accept the role. Um so it was then on the set of the birds that Tippi was approached to take the star and role. And I think it's interesting to contextualise Marnie because it comes later in Hitchcock's career, mm-hmm. it's after the birds and before frenzy. And I think for me personally, uh, and some people would argue otherwise, but I feel like this is the last real Hitchcock film. Okay. You know, we've got frenzy, and then we've got a family plot, and that's it. Um right. But I don't think those other two quite belong to that same world, and I think it's because it's his last attempt, really, in the studio and under that old system. You know, I think I chose this because Marnie's been largely dismissed and, to me, it just so overlooked, and I think... Mm. You know, it's Hitchcock's last greatest film and it's deeply cinematic. Yes, it's strange. It's it's deeply cinematic. And for me, it deserves more attention and more discussion. And it's definitely getting that in um, feminist criticism circles. And um, I think it's going to be interesting to discuss it. And um, I'm really interested to hear what you think about the various beats as we go along.
0: So, yeah, as I said, for me, it was quite a, a... a strange movie on, again, I'm going off one watch. So then I'm definitely going to go back to it because it was enough that interested me.
1: Oh, good, good.
0: I'm not sure if I enjoyed it, though. But the but not... I just felt...
1: You said intrigue, though, and I think that's important.
0: Yeah, I will definitely watch it again. 100% I will watch this movie again.
1: What did you think of Tippi's performance?
0: I think I preferred her Bird's performance. I do think she's good in this, but... I don't know. I think there was just uh Do you know what a lot of it reminded me of a wee bit and this is the, just the, the movie in general when it's use a lighting and things like that? The use of the kind of bright flashes of colour. Disfusions, um, mm, yeah. Um and this is obviously influenced probably by Marnie, is malignant. The way malignant in those early scenes involving uh, Gabriel and the murders and everything, obviously it's uh um Jallo inspired but I'm sure Jallo took a lot from a lot of Hitchcock's yep. styles of filmmaking. But that's those scenes where it's like a murder happened just outside a motel, the motel room sign flashing when um, Manly's having her flashbacks, it's bright lights flashing and spinning rooms and things like that. It was very, it just reminded me a wee bit of that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, as I said, intrigue may be more than enjoyment, but it might be enjoyed better, more on a second watch. I don't think the... Um, I didn't really buy Sean Connery, but I've never been a Connery fan. Okay. Like, I... My granddad would not be happy with me if he was still around. <laughs> um, but he's just never... I don't know. I think he's... Maybe it was just the year of me watching him. He became almost a caricature of himself, so now looking back at him, it's Still a wee bit grating. Um, overall, the story I think is really good. Like I was thrilled by the kind of the mystery of why she was having these flashbacks, why she was scared of thunder, why she was so against intimacy. Um, after Mark had forced her to marry him. I mean, he is a dick. <laughs> like, I'm
1: so glad to hear you say
0: that. Yeah, he's a massive <laughs> dickhead. Um, I got that enough from it. <laughs> and Obviously, there was, I think I read as well, there was a lot of controversy. I think Hitchcock either fell out with or fired his initial writer from this because they didn't, want to, include, yeah, yeah. didn't want to include the rape scene. Um and right. Hitchcock essentially it was his basis. It wasn't his, base. I think someone else said to Evan Hunter when you said that you were basically on a flight back to New York.
1: That was the next writer that he brought in, Jay Presson Allen, who so you, then carried on working on the film.
0: Right, okay. Um, and Hitchcock, his interest would have been around that really dark material and disturbing plot point from the book. Um, I assume it would have been controversial at that time as well.
1: Yeah, I guess like just a bit of a trigger warning for anyone about just just a, a content about sexual assault, mm. you know. So just on the the issue you're talking about, so on the honeymoon, um, Mark tells Marnie she's not capable of judging what she needs, and that she ought to be lucky that she was caught by someone as permissive as him. This is after he's essentially given the two options of st- jail or. St- marrying him and being trapped in a marriage with him and you know here she asks him you won't and she doesn't finish the sentence but the implication is clear you know Mm -hmm. you won't you won't force intimacy upon me and he says i won't i give you my word you know and she seems sincerely grateful for that and then you know shortly following you he becomes angry and frustrated she tells him no it's quite clear she tells him no and he pulls off a robe. Yeah. And this is, for me, it's truly a contender for the the, the most disturbing moment in Hitchcock. You know, it, this is a, a moment of quote-unquote intimacy with, with its sexual assault that's preceded, not by tenderness, but aggression, you know. He then tells her he's sorry, but it's clear actually to me that she's in a complete trance. You know, she's not responding to his kisses or his caresses. Yeah. When we get this real tight shot of his eyes, where he looks so predatory. And you know, the theme of predatory and prey is something that's very present within the film. Uh, and then, you know, we get a close-up on Marnie's face, and it's totally vacant, totally vacant. Um, and then he rapes her. Um, there's no misread in this scene. No. It, people do, but there is no misread in it. And the the next morning she tries to commit suicide, which I think is another testimony to I just don't know how you could read this any other way. But yeah, as you said, um Evan Hunter, who was the initial writer, uh, he advised Hitchcock to remove the scene because he actually felt that um Sean Connery's character wouldn't be recoverable after this. It's like, how are the audience gonna respond to such a character once once he does something as heinous as as this? Um, he provided an alternative and then um his employment was terminated. So
0: So you can tell Hitchcock's thoughts on that then. Um, It's it's real interesting because I don't think his character is ever necessarily redeemed after this. As the the writer said, he is not a good man. but He's never a good man throughout it. He allows um, Marnie to get the job at his work because he sees an advantage in it for him. Initially I thought it was going to go down the way of Maybe a Bonnie and Clyde They were going to <laughs> rob places again I, didn't have a, I went in blind to Both movies that I hadn't seen just So it was a surprise for when it went And I thought maybe they were going to Rob the place that he worked with His help sort of thing And it was going to be more of that type of story But it's a very much A tale of Him Gaslighting her into a control That he has her under
1: yeah, Marnie for me is like a tale of somebody who is experiencing repeated cycles of trauma. Mm-hmm. So from her childhood to the way a mother is treated her, to Mark's yeah. entrapment, the assault, the suicide attempt, the mm. loss of her beloved horse, you, and then the final revelation of what's happened to her in her childhood. She's someone who's always going in cycles yeah. and then she's caught by Mark, but I think she's also in her own trap as well, which... Sort of ties nicely to that scene in um, in Psycho where Marion and Norman are talking about private traps, and mm-hmm. um, and that's where I say it's nice when I can find how the films talk to each other. Yeah. Um, Imani can't put down roots anywhere, but she also can't stop returning to her mother either. So there's cycles there, and I think there's echoes of her mother's past in her own life. You know, her mother has had to let go of the past in order to survive, and I think. Marnie's the same. She's always running. She's always mm-hmm. moving. Yeah. You know. Um, and I think she's a very complex character. And I think Tippy's performance is so she just she brings so many facets to it, you know, from like a childlike vulnerability, you know, to a wanting to be loved and to be decent. You know, there's this theme of decency that runs throughout the film. Like yeah. Zaya, decent. Um, and so, you know, I think. Marnie's a very interesting one to deconstruct. And again, we get examples of the pure cinema that I kind of wanted to just briefly touch on the opening scene, which is simply a woman just walking away from us in an empty station, but right from the open, Hitchcock's giving us pure cinema and telling us so much, whilst also concealing a lot as well. You know, he's setting up those key themes of identity, sexuality, like um. Uh, purses or handbags in Hitchcock are um, they're read as if they're open then it's a female is indicating sexual availability but if they're shut this is denoting uh, you know I'm not available and this this Marnie's purse is right tucked under her arm you know she is like not interested in sex and so I think he's setting up all those early themes that are going to be really um, important throughout the film and then I really wanted to ask you what mm-hmm. you thought about the robbery scene at Rutland because this is one of often cited as like one of the best examples of Hitchcock's use of suspense, where we've got that sort of double shot where she's robbing the safe and then there's a cleaner coming down on the opposite side. Like, yeah, that?
0: and it's when she drops she drops a purse at some point as well. When she's is that not a purse? necessarily? She drops her shoes remember, she fall drops. out
1: of her pockets.
0: That's what it is, because she takes her shoes off to not make any noise, and the end of the cleaners coming along. Yeah, um, as I said, I, I definitely need to give the movie another watch. This scene, you can definitely feel the tension and the the. It's not maybe even a build up a dread because you don't want her getting uh, I'm terrible awards tonight. It's awful. This <laughs> is one of the days. Um, it's. I think it's when they say the thing about Hitchcock being the master of suspense is this is the scene that maybe doesn't encapsulate it, but it certainly adds to how that moniker would maybe come about. Um, It's, um, aye, it's a a great scene, yeah. Um, It's it's a really Mm -hmm. difficult one for me to discuss, the movie in in a whole, because I was kind of... swaying with my feelings over the whole thing throughout the whole movie because I did find it such a strange movie it was the the character of Mark being so that he's very uncomfortable with watch throughout the whole thing and then my kind of focus has been on thinking about the end which is if, if you if you get what I mean by that like obviously what, what about yourself for that, that scene anyway sorry before I go on to the end and kind <laughs> no. of move on from um,
1: no, I was simply going to say again. It's 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 probably for me construct in terms of construct. It's 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 the most masterful scene of the film, and mm-hmm. it's completely silent. Yeah. And Hitchcock showing us every beat and being so careful. You know, he shows us the shoes slowly slipping. Cuts back back to the shoes. It's like he's really building that suspense. Um, and just a quick note on the, the, the non-naturalistic techniques in this film, because this is often something that it gets called into criticism for. Um, so we've got, like, use of non-naturalistic um, techniques through painted backdrops, projections. These are all, like, strong features of Marnie. Um, yeah, when she's riding forio, when she's in the car with Mark, in Mother's Street in Baltimore, when they're at the racetrack, and then later on, the Child of Flashback, which is in Sapia. You know, it doesn't look realistic. But I think for Hitchcock, it really wasn't about achieving accuracy. What he's trying to do, it's the impression that he wants to convey. It's the emotions. That, you know. It's where he wants to take an audience. You know, so when she's riding forio, these non-naturalistic backdrops, to me, I read them as they're indicative of a dream world, an escape. You know, her hair's blowing. Yeah. And she's in a place of like just pureness. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at a family home and the, there's this huge ship at the end that looks so out of place, I yeah. guess, in a sense. It's artificial, but I think, again, that represents things connected to Marnie's past. And it's a haziness like a memory. Like a memory wouldn't be realistic. It would be almost blurred at the edges and not quite real. And I think it evokes that sense of of going into the past. Um, And then the profusions, I think, a lot of people say, oh, but that takes me out of the film, these flashes of wrath. I actually find it takes me deeper into Marnie's psychology. You know, it shows us how Hitchcock's not so interested in naturalism, but in cinema, like the visual and how it impacts us and how he conveys the character's mindset.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you're saying about, especially the when she's riding her horse, it did initially strike me as... Oh, that's quite obviously not meant to be, not meant to look real, because yes. the speed as well with which that screen is rushing past, and it's obviously we're looking at it through the lens of Marnie. The whole movie is meant to be for how we, uh, how she's perceiving everything, like her reaction to lightning, her reaction to blood on a dress, um, her reaction when she goes to see her mum as well. Yeah, is very her mum's almost caricature in a way, like oh, her. Uh, oh
1: gosh, what a performance. Yeah, I mean, it's great.
0: Like yeah. but it's very heightened, a, a very heightened performance, and it's almost like you're witnessing her through through Marnie. Um Exactly,
1: yeah. And she plays both Marnie's mother and then her mother in the flashback as well. Mm-hmm. So she's the same actress playing both roles. And yeah. She really conveys this weight and tragedy to her character, I think. And like you say, how I mean it's how she deals with Jesse, the young child that comes in. And spends a lot of time with her, and there's this like jealousy dynamic with Marnie, and how Marnie sees her interacting with other children, and feels this is not a warmth that she ever felt.
0: Mm-hmm. And the mum wants the um, the the neighbour and the child to move in with her, so it's almost because she's felt as if she's not had that. The mother must felt as if she's not had the chance to raise a child properly because of the tragedy that happened from a young age and they were so distant from each other. Um, In terms of the ending, it's again ambiguous (laughs) with what's happening. There is um, huge question marks over where that life is going to go for Marnie. It's the element of Mark again in it that is really... It leaves a, a, a feeling in the stomach that I'm not very comfortable with at the end of the movie. Cause he's like, we'll get you help, or I can't remember his exact line, but it's along those lines. It's like, I'll oh, come with me, I'll put my arm around you, I'll protect you. When he's been nothing but an antagonist essentially for the whole movie. Um, what do you think of that we'll way to end the movie?
1: Yeah, so I think I, I guess I won't reveal the you know the secret <laughs> of what's you know because I imagine a lot of people probably haven't seen Marnie. So, but you know, in terms of what Mark reveals about what he knows of that secret is also just really toxic. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't allow her mother to talk to that so much. He has done his own investigations, which is also incredibly unnerving. He's been investigating Marnie and her past and he's not being honest about that. But I think in terms of this sort of, as you're saying, like the end's improper, I think you know, Marnie turns to him and says, what am I going to do? And she almost seems to be her true self for the first time, you know, now that she's found out the truth about herself in a situation. But as she and Mark leave, she knows that she's basically faced with still that same choice when she was first captured of it's jail or it's, you know, staying in marriage with Mark. And I think what's the most revealing word is that she says, I'd rather stay with you. Okay. So it's that word rather, mm-hmm. w- which is important to me because this is not, it's a choice of two things. It's yeah. not a freedom of choice, it's a choice of either or. And she would rather stay with Mark. But that does not mean that if the choices were removed, that she <laughs> would want to be with him. Yeah. And I think it's one of the strongest ambiguous sentences in Hitchcock. You know, she's still in this trap position although she's resolved their tra- trauma. But what's this relationship with Mark being built on as well? If we look at the sequence of events that has led us to this moment, mm-hmm. it's nothing but trauma and wrongdoing on Mark's yeah. part.
0: Bribery. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very interesting. As you said, uh, the she has kind of managed to break the shackles of her past and what has been holding her back from maybe moving forward in her life. But she's kind of, She's got like two layers to break through. She's got through one and that's what we've seen her overcome and we've not seen what happens to that next layer of that next prison really. Is it going to resolve itself? Is she going to, is Mark going to end up dead? Maybe. Like, maybe get the mum in. Get her just bang, <laughs> sorted.
1: Antis <laughs> alternative there, there
0: we go. Well, give you a Hitchcock phone. Oh, You might not answer. <laughs> um, yeah, so like is there a is there, is there a way for her to break out of that in second prison in her adult life when she's managed to resolve her past trauma which has plagued her for decades or however the kind of the length of her life? And it's quite a somber and bleak ending in a way. Mm. Especially when she states she's having to be with a rapist. And it was we spoke on the guy that raped her and she has to stay with him or pick jail. Hi, it's uh, It's. I definitely need to re-watch it because knowing what you've said to me now about it with Hitchcock wanting it to be about the cinema experience not about the reality mm-hmm. it's definitely a way I would be able to it's definitely a movie that I would view in a different light now on a second watch as well again, first time watch with anything can be from Coming out of a movie and going, that is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And you rewatch it, and you go, oh, "God, that was awful." <laughs> but you get <laughs> caught up in the cinematic moments of it. This was a first time for me, so I definitely need to give it another go. Um, and having that perspective certainly open up a, a lot of different avenues for me while watching it. But I don't think it's certainly even. I was unsure of it. I didn't think it was a bad movie, but that way, it was just intriguing in a way that I wasn't expecting. So that is covers us for the three. Hitchcock movies, um, Suspicion, Rope, and Marnie. If you had to pick, and obviously you love Hitchcock, so is there any ones that you would say? I mean, there's the obvious ones there is Psycho, there is Vertigo, um, there is The Birds. What would you say, maybe one or two, that people would definitely have to check out if they hadn't seen even these three and to move to go into the next kind of chapter?
1: Yeah, so I'd say for anyone unfamiliar with Hitchcock or has never seen a Hitchcock, I would head to Rear Window and North by Northwest as really good starting points, and of course Psycho. But some of my favourites that sort of sit outside of the the more you know, I wouldn't say popular, but you know the more recognised are um, Notorious, Strangers on a Train, and Shadow of a Doubt.
0: What was that last one?
1: Shadow of a Doubt
0: never heard of that one, so that's one I'll need to check oh, out as well.
1: Well, you can get me back on. <laughs>
0: Aye, I'll give you a message once I've watched it as well. Um, and then for yourself, what else have you got coming up over the next wee while? Uh, work-wise, releases, articles, all that shit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um, my Hitchcock women series continues with moving pictures film club my next essay is actually on shadow of a doubt which i'm in a deep obsession with at the moment um you can find my essays on marnie and suspicion um as well as the rest of my series on um with hitchcock's women at moving pictures film club um i'm also working on an editorial about 1982's the entity um and then i've got two big projects in the pipeline that I can't really reveal too much about, but I can say one of them's horror-based and one of them's Hitchcock-based. So I the two H's in my life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so well, I'll put uh, all your socials in the show notes and the, a link to your Gerald's Game editorial as well, so i need to go and check that out as well. Um, and what I do with the guests is just to sign out on to pick a piece of music, score, from a movie doesn't need necessarily be one of the ones that we've discussed tonight but um have you had a think about that
1: i did have a think and i was like i need it i'm not going to choose hitchcock i almost chose where <laughs> to go and i thought that's too predictable but i want a hitchcock connection so i chose i know you said song but i cheated a bit and i chose the score to taxi driver Okay. um it's one that i listen to a lot when i'm working and the score was composed by bernard herman who worked you know a lot with hitchcock from the trouble with harry right through to marnie mm-hmm. um and um taxi driver itself the film it takes influence from a hitchcock film from 1956 called cool. the wrong man so yeah shout out to taxi driver always
0: yeah. and <laughs> any particular one from that
1: Oh no, just, just it's one, it. it's one, you know, it's, it's one mood. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so, that's
0: fine. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's been great learning so much about Hitchcock that I didn't know before. And as I said, two of these were first time watches. And I'll definitely recheck Marnie just to have a look at it through that new lens. Um, Rope is just a classic. I love it. And then... We will catch up again soon, and this is music from the score of Taxi Driver.